KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The city is suing after another bad real estate deal. This time, it's the purchase of two hotels. The first one was uh, was the most expensive hotel per room cost uh, all year. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Why vaccination rates among people on Medi-Cal are significantly lower than the general population? In San Diego, while 86% of the overall eligible population had received at least one dose, only 48% of the county's Medi-Cal enrollees had done so. And how the military denies justice to sexual assault victims, plus a new book tells the story of the Haitian Revolution. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Another bad real estate deal is in litigation with the city of San Diego. After approval from counsel, city attorney Mara Elliott announced they are suing the real estate brokers who advised the Housing Commission to acquire two hotels in Mission Valley and in Kearney Mesa to house unsheltered people during the peak of the pandemic. As the San Diego Union-Tribune's Jeff McDonald reports, the problem is that the city or better yet, you, the taxpayer, paid way more for the properties than what they were worth in a deal filled with conflicts of interest. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. So what prompted this lawsuit and who are the defendants? The city attorney's office announced yesterday they were suing the brokers in a deal that the city agreed to last fall to acquire two residents in properties to house homeless people that were vulnerable to COVID-19. The brokers, it turns out, well, one of them is alleged to have had uh, stock insider trading and recommended one of the properties and then invested, uh, you know, about 40,000 shares of that company's uh, stock. So that's problematic because that was not disclosed. And uh, secondarily, another issue is the selling price for the two properties. I reported, the Union Tribune reported early this year that the selling price was notably above what uh, the market rate was bearing because of the downturn in the tourism sector due to the pandemic. So how did this bad deal come to light? The Union Tribune reported that the costs appeared high because hotel properties devalued uh, notably uh, last year in the, uh, you know, throughout the crisis. Uh, And I mean, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent in some cases. The city based its purchase price for the two properties on pre-COVID appraisals. So the city defended the sale price, said they were uh, in terrific condition, they had kitchenettes, they were going to serve the city's needs uh, very favorably. In May, the Voice of San Diego was first to report the stock deal that one of the brokers entered into, apparently unbeknownst to the city. So there are two problems with these, uh, with these deals, one being the sales price for the properties and the other being the personal investments of one of the brokers. 
Hmm. You know, and as you mentioned, you previously reported that the city overpaid for these two hotels uh, that would be used to house people who were homeless. How much did the city overpay? The per room rate for one of the properties was close to $350,000. That's a lot for a, a hotel room uh, under any circumstance, let alone when the bottom is falling out of the, uh, you know, the hotel market. The second property sold for about $275,000 per room, which of course is uh, higher than uh, higher than most. I think it was the fifth costless transaction in the county all of last year. The, the first one was, uh, was the most expensive hotel per room cost uh, all year. And, uh, and, and you mentioned that the brokers were also paid high commissions. Uh, what were they paid? Well, they were paid 500000 just over 500000 by the city, which I asked about early this year because it's not usually the buyer that picks up the broker's commission. Uh, the Housing Commission told me at the time that that was perfectly appropriate because of the work that the brokers had done uh, and that that commission was deserved. The city attorney's office in its lawsuit yesterday said that was inappropriate, that it exceeded the limits in the uh, original broker's agreement. And they also noted that the same brokers collected almost $600,000 from the sellers. So that's unusual that a broker would get paid from both sides in a transaction. So I think that's going to be something that's litigated. And we'll see where that goes. The uh, The defendants have not commented yet on the uh, lawsuit. They didn't comment to me last uh, early this year when I uh, looked them up before. And when you approached the city about your reporting on all this, what did they initially say? Well, I got directed to the Housing Commission early this year because it was a Housing Commission transaction. Uh, I'm not clear on why the Housing Commission took the lead on purchasing hotel properties on behalf of the city because the city operates its own real estate assets department. Uh, Although you may remember that department has been called into question for its decision-making related to the Ash Street acquisition and now the Civic Center Plaza and some of the uh, some of the other properties, according to a city audit that was released just late last month. But the Housing Commission said that these were good deals and that the city was going to benefit, and they stood by the decision. They stood by the sales prices. So we quoted them saying that, and here we are six months later. The city attorney's office is uh, publicly questioning the Housing Commission decisions from late last year. Uh, so the Housing Commission was responsible for this. Who was mayor at the time when this deal was was inked? Uh, Kevin Faulkner was the, uh, these deals were made under the Faulkner administration. And uh, it's interesting to note that the mayor is responsible for appointing all the housing commissioners. So I think it's fair to say the buck stops with the uh, city's chief executive. Mm. And so now that the city has a new administration and is changing their tune and suing over the deal, what does that signal to you? Well, it does look like the city attorney's office is trying to clean up uh, another bad real estate deal, or at least questionable. Uh, so you got to give the, uh, the city credit for that. According to the city attorney's office, they were approached by the Housing Commission earlier this year to look into the details of the deal. It's not clear when and why that request was made, but uh, you got to give the, uh, the city officials currently in charge credit for uh, looking at the deal in more detail right now. Mm. And you have questions about certain checks and balances that just weren't undertaken in these deals under the previous administration. Talk to me about that. Well, it's not clear why the Housing Commission didn't uh, request uh, public disclosures, uh, so-called statements of economic interest by the brokers that were uh, in charge of the deal. 
Those are supposed to be disclosed by parties to any public transaction, you know, your personal financial interests, just to make sure that you don't benefit financially the way uh, this brokerage is accused of doing so. So it's not clear why those disclosures weren't made. It's not clear why the appraisals were conducted prior to the pandemic, because the value you know, the values change and the market conditions change dramatically in the wake of COVID. So why did the Housing Commission rely on appraisals that were prior to the market falling out due to the COVID? So those are some pretty basic questions that anyone buying a house or buying a property would normally conduct. Um, and I've asked those questions and uh, haven't really gotten a straight explanation. I've been speaking with Jeff McDonald, San Diego Union Tribune investigative reporter. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. You bet. Thank you. All the way through the COVID pandemic, we've seen people in poorer communities suffer the worst of the disease. People who couldn't work from home, who lived in crowded environments, and who had to risk getting sick to bring in a paycheck had higher rates of disease and death than the general population. Now that economic divide is showing up in vaccination rates across California. Numbers revealed by the state show vaccination rates among low-income people on Medi-Cal are significantly lower than the general population, and they are urging healthcare providers to make sure Medi-Cal patients have more access to vaccines. Joining me is Cal Matters health reporter Ana Ibarra, and Ana, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Maureen. How big is the discrepancy between Medi-Cal patients' vaccination rates and the general public? Yes. So at the state level, about 70% of eligible Californians had received at least one dose as of July 18th. But when you look at the Medi-Cal population, that rate fell to about 45%. Um, This, of course, looks a little different in, in each county, although all 58 counties have gaps. Um, In San Diego, while 86% of the overall eligible population had received at least one dose, only 48% of the county's Medi-Cal enrollees had done so. Um, Right next door in Imperial, it's 81% and 50%, so significant gaps. And, you know, just, of course, when we talk about eligible population, we're looking at everyone 12 and older. And what do officials say is causing such low rates among Medi-Cal recipients? Yes. So, you know, I've heard a variety of reasons, uh, but almost everyone I spoke to uh, from providers um, to, uh, you know, the the state and other experts, they talked about practical challenges um, for low-income people. You know, many have limited time. They're juggling multiple jobs. If they don't have a car or rely on public transportation um, or live in more rural areas, it's probably going to be harder for you to get to an appointment. Um, Also, people may be concerned about, you know, having to take time off work. I think that's still a very real problem. Um, And and it's taking time off work, not just for the appointment, but if, you know, feel any symptoms after they're shot. Um, And I think that's a maybe a a, a special concern um, for heads of households, you know, and if your family relies on your income. And take us through some of the obstacles that may face a low-income worker in accessing or even deciding to get a vaccine. Yeah. So, you know, I think, again, the taking time off work, um, 
we, I talked to some folks out in Humboldt County who made a really good point. You know, they talked about their farm workers and people who work in tourism, you know, they're at the peak of their season right now. So, you know, they're less likely to want to take time off work or ask um, for, for uh, time off uh, because, you know, not going to work means, uh, you know, no, uh, means less income. So, you know, and those of us who have gotten a vaccine know that, you know, the shot can knock you out for a couple of days. And so that's obviously that that just translates to less money for some families. And how does the Delta variant increase the urgency to find a solution to this problem? Yes. So, you know, we're learning that the Delta variant is more contagious and, you know, we're already seeing cases and hospitalizations go up. Um, we've seen how in past surges uh, or how some past surges, you know, rip through some of these low-income communities, like you mentioned. So I think the concern is if this group is falling behind on vaccinations, they will continue to be vulnerable and at high risk. And we might see some of the same consequences that we saw, you know, in the winter and last summer. The disparity in vaccination rates between the general public and Medicaid recipients is showing up all over the country, isn't it? Yeah, so this isn't, you know, special or unique to California. So while I was working on this story, I read that Ohio's governor had noticed a similar disparity in his state last month. And what he did was challenge health plans to focus on the Medicaid population and they, you know, uh, to enroll uh, an additional 900,000 people by mid-September. And so one way that health plans there are, are encouraging people to get vaccinated is by offering $100 gift cards to, to those on Medicaid and uh, once they get their first shot. Okay, so that's something that other states are doing. What are we doing about it here? What are some things employers and healthcare providers can do to reach more Medi-Cal patients? Yeah, so the one thing that I, I, you know, I keep hearing is we have to make vaccines as easy as possible to get. You have to sort of take vaccines where uh, some of these folks live and work, right? So, you know, one thing that we hear about and some national polls have shown this too, is that when employers encourage vaccination or provide time off, people are more likely to get um, their shot. So when vaccines first started rolling out to farm workers, for example, many growers were, um, growers, employers were actually partnering up with counties and bringing vaccines to the workplace. Um, I actually went to one in Santa Clara County uh, back in March and, you know, in speaking to folks there, the number one thing workers mentioned was uh, convenience. If they could get a shot during their lunch break or after their shift and not have to go anywhere, that was really what convinced some people. Also, one doctor says phone calls to Medi-Cal recipients might be very effective. Why is that? Yeah, so, you know, one thing that is interesting about focusing on Medi-Cal enrollees is that we know or the state knows who these people are, right? So you can have health plans and providers reach out or do more targeted outreach to them. So, you know, phone calls, they say just direct calling um, uh, some of these enrollees is... um, of help because it gives the opportunity for people to ask questions. And so the way they're doing this is really doing these sort of check-in calls. So, you know, not necessarily trying to alarm people, but just asking how they're doing and whether they have any questions about the vaccine. And so when people, you know, are are able to ask questions without necessarily feeling pressured, um, you know, that can help alleviate or answer some some confusion and, and concerns for them. 
I've been speaking with Cal Matters health reporter, Ana Ibarra. Ana, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The Defense Department estimates 20,000 sexual assaults happen in the military each year, but only about 1% end in convictions. President Biden and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin have endorsed major changes in how those cases are handled, but reforms likely will take years. Carson Frame reports from the American Homefront. When troops are sexually assaulted or harassed, they often face a daunting path to justice. If they choose to report the attack, their commander decides whether the case goes to trial and what the accused service member is charged with. But critics say that's a problem because commanders aren't legal experts. In many cases, they're also colleagues or friends of the alleged perpetrator. Junior enlisted service members do not trust their leaders to handle these problems, they don't trust that there will be accountability for sexual assault in particular. Lynn Rosenthal, an advocate for survivors of gender violence, chaired an independent commission that looked at possible fixes. It recommended that cases be handled by independent prosecutors. Speaking on the PBS NewsHour, Rosenthal said those would be military lawyers who specialize in sexual harassment and assault. By moving the technical legal decisions about whether or not to Uh, charge a suspect with a crime, and then whether or not to send that case to trial. Independent prosecutors are better able to make those decisions, and we hope to see a restored trust within the military. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has endorsed the commission's report. He's also embraced a broader goal of changing the culture of the military and providing more resources for victims. But that will likely mean hiring a lot of people and developing a new framework for the thousands of sexual assault and harassment complaints the military receives each year. Congress and the Defense Department will have to find the money and change military law. Lori Manning is with the Service Women's Action Network. My concern is that By the time it goes through the congressional uh, meat grinder and the interpretation of, uh, well, now what, six different military services on what the report says and what Congress did to it says and how they implemented this a lot that can go wrong. You can have a map to California and end up in Delaware. The reforms also have to overcome resistance from within the Pentagon. Despite Austin's announcement, the military service chiefs have been reluctant to take sex abuse cases out of the chain of command. They argue it would erode good order and discipline and take an important responsibility away from leaders. Don Christensen, president of the advocacy group Protect Our Defenders, says reform efforts won't succeed without their buy-in. Really, a lot of this is going to depend on the attitude of leadership in the military. If I were President Biden, I'd be calling the 
members of Joint Chiefs to staff in and say, this is important to me. I'm your commander in chief. Get on board. Make it clear to the force this is going to happen and that you support it. With all the work that lies ahead, the new rules likely won't be in place until at least 2023. Manning says in the meantime, victims of sexual assault and harassment still have to work through their chain of command. We may see some changes with commanders right away because they they know they're being watched a lot closer than they were. But I think we have to get the message out to those who are thinking about reporting it that, hey, the old system is in place until it's not. Under that old system, many people choose not to report because they're afraid of retaliation or they worry crimes won't be properly investigated. And Manning says with new rules on the horizon, some may choose to wait in hopes that their cases will be taken more seriously. This is Carson Frame reporting. A heat advisory is in effect for San Diego's inland valleys until tomorrow night, and temperatures are expected to soar in the eastern part of the county. Borrego Springs may reach 116 degrees. But at county beaches, it's a very different story. Surface water temperatures are measuring an exceptionally cool 60 degrees. So obviously, the answer is to hit the beach if you can. But here with more and better answers about our summer heat wave is National Weather Service meteorologist Alex Tardy. Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on again. Hot weather in August, usually not news, but it's getting really hot in some parts of the county, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. In August, that's our normal hottest period here in San Diego. So we expect to see some of our hottest temperatures uh, and sometimes humidity too uh, in the month of August. But what's going on right now is we have unusual hot conditions, even above average, and that's going to affect our mountains, our inland valleys, and especially, like you mentioned, our deserts where temperatures will get over 115. And even for there, that's above average. And does this heat bring fire danger with it? Oh, it sure does, unfortunately. So last week, we had more moisture around, uh, which we call the monsoon, and that helps suppress the fire activity. The fires still start, but they don't burn as fast. Now that we have these high temperatures above average, warmer than they should be, the full sunshine and the lower humidity, so less moisture, those ingredients, um, they're actually reflected in the fuel levels, the moisture of the fuels just the past few days is plummeting again back to record levels. So fire danger is elevated. It's definitely there. And will air quality be a concern during this rise in temperatures? Yeah, a little bit, because what happens with the air quality when you get into these heat waves or these dome of high pressures that we call it, it tends to trap and and suppress a lot of the movement of the air vertically. So that does two things. It smushes our marine layer further down uh, near the beaches, so the low clouds and fog hang out down there. But it also acts to put a lid on our air, even where it's sunny and clear, and that can cause stagnation, buildup of ozone, and just poorer air quality. Now, in most areas of the county, it feels like it's been more humid this summer than usual. Is that the case? I wouldn't say more than usual. We've, We've seen a trend, though. Since 2012, we've been tracking very closely And in each summer, July, August, September, we've seen a trend where humidity has been above, you know, like a 30-year average across our region. Uh, One of the the peaks was back in 2018 and 2019, 
Um, the two things are conflicting each other right now. So we, we did see mon monsoon moisture come up last week, and that's probably the humidity you felt. But we have the ocean temperatures that took a nosedive, and so that kind of offsets some of the local humidity as well. Uh, so we have two things conflicting, and right now we're you know out of the monsoon briefly, and we have those cool water temperatures, so we're not quite as humid as we really could be or have been in the past few years in August. And what's causing these very cool ocean temperatures? Well, in simple terms, we call it upwelling, and it's a very natural occurrence along the coast. When you get uh, northerly winds along the coast, it helps turn up the water and it'll bring up that colder water underneath. The past three years in the summer, we've seen very little um, effective upwelling. Uh, most recently, we just saw temperatures drop about 10 degrees Fahrenheit on the coast. But believe it or not, offshore, well offshore, there's still what we call a marine heat wave. There's still water that's much warmer than it should be. That's similar water to what we've seen in the past three summers. So right now, we're definitely not complaining about this recent upwelling cooling because there's still a lot of warm water and it could change rapidly uh, to the warmer side in a short notice, especially in August and September. Now, while it lasts, is the cool water helping us keep nighttime temperatures more comfortable along the coast? Yeah, uh, kind of a combination of things. So the, the cooler water directly affects our air temperature, especially right near the coast. So it's like having an air conditioner. Um, it also, when the water is cool, believe it or not, even with clouds and marine layer, the mugginess is less. And so in essence, what you're saying, yes, correct. It, it helps at nighttime under clear skies and dry air like we have now. It helps at night to cool it off. So the one good thing about this heat wave is the nights are relatively cool inland and on the coast, but the days are warm. And okay, so we have to get to it. Remind us when we should start feeling Santa Ana conditions kick in. Yeah, we have to mention it, don't we? Um, so on average, we see mid to late September where our first Santa Ana starts to influence our area. And that's directly associated with the, the jet stream that starts bringing a little bit cooler air to the Northern Rockies. In earnest, it's typically in October. And there's really no reason this year why we wouldn't see average or if not slightly above average. So more than normal Santa Ana wind events as we go into the fall. It's going to be a critical time this fall for fire weather conditions. What's the outlook for the rest of August though? For the rest of August, we look to have above average temperatures, warmer than normal temperatures. We also look to see potential for more monsoon activity. That's that's what brings the mugginess, but that also brings some beneficial rain to our mountain areas. It looks like in the middle of August, we could get back into that. Okay, I've been speaking with National Weather Service meteorologist, Alex Tardy. As always, Alex, thank you so much. Thanks much. Amazon is hiring roughly 1,500 workers to staff a new fulfillment center currently under construction in Otay Mesa. Jobs at the center will start at $15 an hour. But as San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Philip Molnar writes, that may not be enough to entice workers in a local job market where employers are having a tough time attracting talent with the lackluster benefits and low wages they're offering. Philip Molnar joins us now. Philip, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start off with the obvious question. Is Amazon going to be able to fully staff this new center with the wages they're offering? 
Well, if we just look on the surface of what they said, that jobs will start at a minimum of $15 an hour, it could be quite difficult because we've been reporting here uh, at the Union Tribune, and even I've heard it on KPBS, that jobs are really hard to get filled right now from a lot of employers. We've heard stories about dishwashers being offered up to $20 an hour. And I even talked to some staffing recruiters in San Diego County that said $15 an hour is way too low to start any sort of operation here in San Diego. What I will say about that is Amazon says the jobs will start at a minimum of 15 an hour. And I have reached out to Amazon to ask, hey, can you tell me what percentage are at 15 an hour? You know, is the majority of these 1,500 jobs going to be closer to 18? But Amazon uh, did not respond to that particular question. So we really don't know at this point. The starting pay, though, of $15 an hour seems to fall short on the going rate for hourly work in the current market. What's typical for hourly workers in this county? And and why is Amazon offering such a lower base pay? One of the things is the minimum wage here in San Diego County is about $14 an hour right now. But when you actually talk to recruiters around town and you look at job listings, the going rate is more like $17 to $20 an hour. So that's sort of what's happening right there. Amazon, I can't really say for sure. They've been very close-lipped on what they were doing down in Otay Mesa. They actually, after a year and a half of construction, this is the first time last week when they announced they were hiring. That was actually the first time that they admitted it was them building down there. So I haven't got a whole lot of information from Amazon about what their thinking is about starting at $15 an hour, if they're planning on upping that. A lot of people have commented on my article that The location of the Otay Mesa facility is super close to the port of entry, which I've included in my story. But there are thousands of workers in Tijuana, Mexico that cross every day still, even with the COVID restrictions, cross every day to work in the San Diego County. So some of the comments I've gotten is some theories that they might be trying to get that Tijuana workforce over to this facility so that they will take the lower pay here in the United States and be able to, you know, live quite well in Tijuana on that, on that wage. Uh, But what I will know is Amazon sent out in their news release, they said that they will be soon searching for Spanish speaking workers at the facility. But what they didn't say was, are they searching for Spanish speaking only, or are they looking for bilingual workers? Because those are two pretty big different things. And I did ask Amazon that question, but they just repeated the same line that they will be looking for Spanish-speaking workers. So we don't really know at this point what their thinking is in that regard. Did they tell you anything about offering bonuses or anything, any additional incentives? So they didn't tell me, but I went to the actual job listing and it says that new hires will get a $100 bonus if they show proof of COVID-19 vaccination. I've seen other bonus programs that Amazon has been offering at different locations. I did not see that for the Otay Mesa facility, just showing the proof the proof of the COVID vaccine is their main bonus right now. You know, these fulfillment centers, they've notoriously had high turnover and controversial working conditions. Do you think that shifting attitudes among prospective workers could lead to a change in how companies like Amazon compensate their workers? Yeah, you know, we're seeing a lot of this across the job market. So a big thing people say, well, one of the reasons we can't find workers is because unemployment is so high right now. And there's definitely some of that going on. But when we actually talk to a lot of individual workers, 
Some of them got used to working from home. They just want to stay working from home or they made adjustments to become like a one income household where there might've been two before, and it's actually kind of working out during COVID. So they don't want to go back to that. So you see a lot of things that employers are trying to do to get workers back in the office. So I would not be surprised if Amazon doesn't try to sweeten the pot a little bit as far as their jobs here. You know, I've just heard about things across the country because, you know, there have been union drives at a lot of these facilities. And there's also a lot of political pressure based on bad stories that have come out at these fulfillment centers. Even when Jeff Bezos went up to space, I guess, two weeks ago now. So Jeff Bezos thanked Amazon workers and customers for being able to go up to space and his other company, Blue Origin. But that created a political backlash where a lot of politicians were saying, yeah, the reason you can pay for it is because you pay your employees so poorly and the conditions are horrible. That's what they were saying. So I think there's a lot of pressure on Amazon to sort of change things at these facilities, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Philip Molnar. Philip, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure as always. Oscar the Grouch, Big Bird, and the rest of the Sesame Street Muppets have been teaching kids their ABCs since 1969. But they also tackle difficult issues in a kid-friendly way. Their newest project targets military families and how to talk about racism. From New York, Desiree Deloria reports for the American Homefront Project. Can I tell you a story? Yes, please. Well, you know, one day I was in the supermarket with my mommy. That's Rosita, the feisty teal-colored Muppet with a shock of yellow hair. I met her at Sesame Workshop in New York City, a modern office space with giant chalk drawings of Cookie Monster on the walls. Rosita tells me about the time she went to the supermarket with her mom, and a customer told her to speak English, not Spanish. It made the five-year-old furry monster feel sad and scared. What I told my mommy was that I thought that speaking Spanish was the superpower. And then she said, well, yes, of course it's a superpower. And then I told her, well, you know, I don't want that to happen to other people when they go to the supermarket. So they got the manager to hang a sign that said, all languages welcome. And I put my head up, up high like this. I stretched my neck and I felt so proud of myself. This lesson, how to stand up for yourself and for others, is one theme in a new Sesame Workshop initiative. It's a collection of racial justice resources developed for military families. The videos, games, and activities explain racism to children and help them develop a sense of self-worth. We do the videos for the kids, but we also do the videos for the parents to be able to communicate with the kids. Carmen Osbar is Rosita's puppeteer. She's been working on Sesame Street's Military Family series for 15 years. They don't shy away from sensitive topics. The parents were being deployed over and over and over. So we did one for deployment, dealing with changes, not just physically, but the invisible injuries. And Rosita and her family go through that with the military families. But while the show's cast has always been diverse, Sesame Workshop's Rocio Galarza says they're only now starting to tackle the subject of race head on. We weren't explicit about race or racism, and we are being explicit now. And that's something new, not only for the general public, but also for military families. 
Sometimes we have a lot of feelings, some small. So Galarza gathered up Wes and Elijah, two black Muppets who joined the cast earlier this year, and Rosita and Elmo, who come from military families. Together, they created a music video called Great Things, about how to handle the emotions that can occur after experiencing bias. So when it gets hard, I tell myself these words aloud. Stand up tall and say, I'm super proud. Elmo may be young, but he can do great things. We We do do great great things. things. Galarza says the project came about because military parents said they need help. Military families have been living in a diverse community. They have been trying to address some of these issues before. This is not new for a lot of them. So what they wanted was support. But how do you explain something as complex as discrimination to a four-year-old? When it comes to young kids, it actually starts simply with the idea of who I am. And then once I understand myself, once I understand that I can be strong in my skin, once I understand that there's a lot of good in me inside and out, then we start understanding the differences in others. That's why Rosita has such strong feelings about her identity. Well, I'm very proud that my daddy's a veteran. Proud that we're from Mexico and that we we speak two languages. We're a very loving, caring, and a nice monster family. Galarza says the feedback from military families so far has been positive, and she hopes the project will make tough conversations about race a little easier. We can do great things. We can do great things. I'm Desiree DiOrio in New York. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The Haitian Revolution that started in the late 1700s was noteworthy for being the first uprising of enslaved Africans in the New World to succeed in creating an independent state. Well, Cal State University San Marcos history professor Alyssa Goldstein Sippenwall has written a book called Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games. KPBS arts reporter Beth Acomando speaks with the author about this often overlooked chapter in history. Alyssa, you've just written a book, Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games. So to start with, give us a little introduction to the Haitian Revolution and why it's important for people to remember it. The Haitian Revolution was one of the most important events in modern world history, but it's often one of the least discussed or understood. So 
Haiti had been a French colony called Saint-Domingue in the 17th and 18th century. It was the richest colony in the Americas. That wealth came from growing sugar and coffee, which the Europeans made enslaved Africans do in a really brutal and backbreaking system of labor. So after the French Revolution started in 1789 and French whites were fighting amongst themselves, enslaved people in Haiti realized that this was a time when they could finally get their freedom. So the Haitian Revolution broke out in 1791. By three years later, they had forced the end of slavery. Um, The leader of the revolution at that point was a man named Toussaint Louverture. Um, And by 1804, 10 years later, Haitians had won their independence from France after Napoleon, when he came to power, refused to acknowledge that they were going to be free and tried to re-enslave them. But in a kind of David versus Goliath, Haitians fought back against Napoleon's armies and won, and again, they became independent in 1804. This was the only slave rebellion in the New World to have been successful and resulted in in a new independent free country. So it's very important for that reason and has had symbolic value for blacks throughout the Americas. And what prompted your interest in the Haitian Revolution? So I'm a historian of France. I had studied that as an undergraduate and in graduate school. The Haitian Revolution was never brought up in my education. And I started to discover it. I was, in fact, researching Jews in the French Revolution. So this issue of minorities and how the French treated minorities, even though they declared all men are born and remain free and equal. So I started to look into the history of slavery, but mainstream scholarship on the French Revolution totally ignored it. So in the 1990s, I was one of a group of scholars who started for the first time to say, if we study France and the French Revolution, we really need to be looking at Haiti. You start your book with a reference to Chris Rock hosting the Oscars and to his film Top Five. So what was his kind of influence on the book and and the kind of approach you took? So we often think comedy is trivial or that Chris Rock is just a a jokester, Marty the Zebra from Madagascar. But in fact, he has been pointing out silences in the way that we talk about history for a long time. So as I was starting to work on this project and thinking about the general absence of films on the Haitian Revolution in Hollywood, I discovered his 2014 parody Top 5, which is the story of what would happen to an African-American writer, director, comedian like him if he tried to make a serious film about the Haitian Revolution. I want to make uplifting entertainment. I want to make like thought- Like Like Uprise. I want to make thought-provoking entertainment. This weekend is big. Opening today, you can see him play the Haitian Revolutionary Duddy about money in his new movie, Uprise. He kind of runs through the book, and I note that I'm offering a serious analysis to complement the kind of comedic treatment that he has offered of these issues. So your book looks to a variety of ways that the revolution has been depicted. And Hollywood has tackled it only rarely, and perhaps the most notable example was in the 1950s in a film called Lydia Bailey. So what was that about? I love discovering this film because the conventional wisdom is that Hollywood has never made a Haitian Revolution film. But I found this forgotten film from 1952 from 20th Century Fox that was centered on two white Americans falling in love in the middle of the Haitian Revolution. And I was also able to get access to the archives before COVID 
at USC and in Boston and at the Oscars Library to see the debates that were happening as they made this film, which was kind of an accidental Haitian Revolution film. But Fox bought the rights to one of the biggest historical novels of 1947. They had not seen the plot at all. And when they read the script and they thought about it, they realized that this needed to be set in Haiti, which raised a lot of issues that they were maybe and maybe not ready to be dealing with at that time. It was also part of this wave of social message films about race um, in that era that Fox and other studios made, including Gentleman's Agreement. They were excited about this film and also nervous about this film, and there are a lot of reasons why now it's become obscure and no one remembers it. One is that it's not available in a home video format. Fox has not really been trying to make it uh, available or remembered. One of the things I love about your book is that you include video games. I mean, this is often a maligned media format, but you look to how the Haitian Revolution has been depicted in video games, specifically Assassin's Creed Freedom's Cry. So why is this important to look at for a historian? So I'll say first that historians, for the most part, have completely ignored video games. Many of us don't play them. And then there was this assumption that if, if film makes mistakes, that video games are even more trivializing. But of course, the general public, especially the younger generation who love historical video games, they learn more about the past from these games often than they might in school. And historical video gaming, for people who don't know, is a multi-billion dollar industry. I was surprised myself when I first learned that there was a game that looked at resistance by enslaved Africans in Haiti in the 18th century. One of my students told me and I was shocked. And one of the things I realized when I watched the trailer for this game, Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, was that all of the problems with foreign non-Haitian films on the Haitian Revolution were not in this game. I was born into slavery, deprived of any right, of any faith, I was sold, traded for labor. This game led audiences to empathize with enslaved people. It did not whitewash the French slavery system. It led players to empathize with enslaved people trying to free themselves. So I thought that that was pretty incredible. But I think the game is also part of this larger effort that game studios we're working on in the 2010s to try to diversify games, knowing that gamers were not just white men and that it was important to tell other people's stories. This game represented an effort by Ubisoft to try to talk about different kinds of history, including Haitian history. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Beth, for having me on the show. That was Beth Accomando speaking with author and Cal State University San Marcos history professor Alyssa Goldstein-Sippenwall. Her book is Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. 
Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.